0: Richard Petty, one of the most recognized and admired motorsports figures of all time. I just led to drive race car. Throughout his career, the King had a record 200 victories, seven championships, and more than 700 top 10 finishes. The son of a NASCAR pioneer, Petty was not interested in being a driver himself. He wanted to be a mechanic. We could work on something, make it better, make it faster. But after a change of heart at 21 years old, he continued the family legacy and watched his sport transform over the last half century.
1: It's more of a show
0: now than it used to be. It used to be a race. The Hall of Famers endured serious tragedies on the racetrack, from an accident taking the life of a young boy to the crash that killed his grandson, Adam. If I hadn't been in racing, then Adam probably wouldn't have been in a race car and he probably wouldn't have got killed. Although Petty's long retired from competition, he continues to influence racing, heading up Petty Motorsports and running his custom car shop, Petty's Garage. In 2015, I sat down with the King in Level Cross, North Carolina, where Petty spent his childhood as a mechanic for his father's racing team. You describe the area that you grew up in.
1: See, this This was dairy farm and the bicycle farm, country. And I was born
0: in this house right up here.
1: And my dad started racing in the reaper shed right here behind. And then just over the years, we, you know, we built a compound with all the racing stuff around it. But uh, we were just country people. Uh, you know, i just go to school, I played football, baseball, basketball. And I come home and work on a race car and other guys go home and milk cows or, you know, prime, prime tobacco or whatever it was. So, uh, and, and we didn't think anything about it. It was just, that was just life and uh, we just lived it from there.
0: What do you think your parents most taught you about work ethic early on? <laughs>
1: you didn't, if you didn't work, you didn't eat, that's for sure. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that they ever taught you anything. You just, you followed the, their program. Uh, you know, when you got up in the morning and everybody went to the field and, uh, you know, you went with them or daddy went to the, worked on the race car. We went and worked on the race car. We went to school, uh, you know, just we, we just, far as we was concerned, and still concerned, we're just average people. It's other people, it's different.
0: <laughs> How was tobacco farming early on?
1: Well, that was a lot of work. That was, I mean, people look at tobacco deal and uh, and don't realize that it's a 12 month operation. By the time, uh, you know, in the spring, you got to start the tobacco bed and, you raise them up till they get so big, then you gotta go plow the field, and put them in the field, and then once they grow up, you gotta sucker them and keep the worms off of them, and keep them hoed and all that stuff, and then you go in the field and you prime it all, and then you tie it all up and put it in the barn, and spend all night, That that's before they had gas and stuff, so you spent the night at the tobacco barn keeping the fire going so that they could uh, dry out the tobacco, and then when you got that done, you took it to the back house, and Separate it all and then you take it to Greensboro or Winston or somewhere to the backer sale and hope you got a good price out of it. And then, then it was all over to do again. So it, it wasn't an easy job by any means. When did you first learn about
0: electricity and running water?
1: I probably like 12 or 13 before we had electricity. And we had to have electricity before we could have running water. And I remember our first running water was just. Put a pump in the well and we just had cold water in the house but it was great because we'd never had anything like that i was like 11 or 12 years old when my dad first started racing and all of a sudden we started traveling to pennsylvania and tennessee and ohio and we've seen people have running water and uh you know had cement driveways and all that stuff we grew up and it was just dirt and no. No grass in the yard or no nothing. He was, that and was, that was all foreign to you? That, yeah, when we went out, it was a real world out there. And, uh, you know, it's like everything else. When we, as we grew up and we got the conveniences, then you can't go backwards. Uh, like I say, we used a, a pot in the bedroom and went out in the woods uh, to use the bathroom when we was up to we was 10 or 12 years old and didn't think anything about it because the
0: neighbors, everybody was doing the same thing. When you didn't have the conveniences, looking back on that period of your life, what do you think you most took away from it, and how do you think it shaped you?
1: What I took away was in the future was, look, look how lucky we are that we're going in the right direction. You look back, and, and, and it makes you appreciate it. If you was born with something, no matter what it is, you, I don't think you uh, appreciate it as much as you do if if you live life and gain it. So we, we gained running water and we gained air conditioning and, you know, televisions and radios and all that stuff, which we didn't have when we grew up. So we appreciate it more than maybe the next generation. They grew up and they had all that. Mm-hmm. So th- then they, they looking for
0: something else. Why do you think being a professional race car driver never even entered your mind as a kid?
1: Well, there wasn't no racing going on when I up, up
0: until I was, you know, like 11, 12 years old. And, uh, but but even then, you didn't want to be a race car driver, you wanted to be a mechanic. Well,
1: I never thought about the driving part uh, because I was still 10 years behind driving the thing. Um, the deal was just the mechanical part it just fascinated me that we could work on something, make it better, make it faster, uh, safer, whatever it was. And so uh, my dad was doing the job. He was winning races and winning championships. We didn't need another driver. We just needed the mechanics. Uh, my brother and myself my cousin work on the car to make sure he, that he could go win a race <clears throat> so uh, that that was our our main surprise I, I probably was 17 18 years old before i even thought about driving a car
0: and w- why did you all of a sudden think
1: about it around then well i think uh, I, I grew up with buddy baker and buck baker buck baker uh, was driving against my dad. Buddy Baker was my age, uh-huh. and I think his dad had let him start it when he was 18 and 19. And I asked my dad, I said, you know, why can't I start? He said, <laughs> "He said, you'll learn a lot between 18 and 21 years old. He said, you'll grow up. And so being he was the boss man, or he, I just followed his food, you, you never thought about when you got to be 19 or 20 coming back and say, ah, come on, can we do it? But today i got 21 i walked in and said okay you know i'm ready to try this deal and he said there's a car over in the corner get it ready and go so uh, that that's that's where my racing career started i'm
0: the driving part of it your father lee petty obviously the legend and you even as a child took on a lot of responsibilities uh, w- with the, you know, his, his car, is, his career was really taking off. Talk about your involvement yeah. in the race team. That was that
1: was, respons- that was a family business. And my mother kept the books and kept everything straight. My brother and myself and, and a couple cousins and stuff, we worked on a car because it was our livelihood. You know, the, the guys next door was milking cows and uh, plowing fields or working in the back. Uh, like I say, we were working on race cars. So to make, make your thing ends meet or so you had something to eat and a, a riff over your head, you just did what your parents told you to do and you never questioned it. And I never thought about being in any other profession or doing anything else because my environment was racing and I grew up in that environment and didn't look to get out of that environment. I don't know if I enjoyed it or it was just pushed on you so much you just never thought about doing anything else.
0: How did you work around the NASCAR rule that was implemented, suddenly preventing kids from being around the pits? <laughs>
1: you know, you got creative. Uh, well, <laughs> the big deal was that when it first started, uh, you had to be 21 years old to be in the pit. Uh, and you're get, how old at the time? time. <laughs> like, well, new, we was like early 12, teens, 13 years yeah. old, fourteen years old. Uh, that they had a situation, and they didn't have that many. Officials to check things and everything was
0: just a lot freer and open, and uh, except uh, Bill France yeah. who's running but, NASCAR now only a but, couple of years older than he's like running all around trying to. But, keep but you Na- guys NASCAR
1: up. NASCAR had a uh system at every race you got to, then the pit crew or my dad would go in and uh, or and sign in and they'd give him a little card and they called pit pass, and they probably had four or five different colors. So my dad would get a pit pass, and we had a cigar box in the, in the glove box. And when he got through with the pit pass, he'd put it in there. He kept putting them in putting them in there. And after a period of time, we had all the colors. We'd have two or three red ones, two or three blue ones, two or three green ones. So when we'd get to the racetrack, my dad would go get signed in, he'd come back with the other uh, pit pass, we'd open them. Glove box, and we'd give everybody a yellow pit pass because they never checked the numbers or what the d- date was or any of that. You just showed them the yellow deal and just psh, drove on in. And uh, remember, many a time you'd be working on a race car and you'd see one of the officials and stuff coming, and you'd slide up under the car and, or get in the car or do something just, just to hide. You see them coming. And we've been run out of pits a bunch of times, but is they'd rent us out and they'd come back in, we'd just fall them back in. So you, you, you learn to beat the system, okay?
0: How tough was, once driving home, your father's crashed race car with the missing windshield in the cold? <laughs>
1: yeah, this was about 1950 or somewhere, it was in uh, uh, Heidelberg, Pennsylvania, right out of Pittsburgh. And somewhere down later part of the race, my dad had turned the car over, so, uh, we had, to, I think we went to the junkyard and got a piece of A-frame or something to get the car running. And the front end was so far out of out of whack that it wouldn't follow. And, and back in, we had a, a car, and we just towed the car flat behind it. And the car kept, the front end wasn't right, so it kept pushing my dad's car around. So he put me in the car, and I was like maybe 13 years old or something. And uh, the windshield had been knocked out of it and all that. And he said, look. You just hold the steering wheel straight. Don't don't worry about driving or nothing like that. And when I when I hold up my hand, you put on brakes. And uh, so we, we drove that thing home. Got home sometime Monday morning, and, and and you didn't think anything about it because you did what you had to do
0: to to get the job done. I guess. Well, here's one I'd imagine you thought something about. How did you wind up on the roof of your dad's car, hanging on for <laughs> dear life? Well, that's. Like, uh, I think 1954
1: was in uh, High Point, North Carolina, a little half mile of dirt. And uh, they'd run some of the race and stuff and the track was real muddy to begin with and there was a bunch of mud on the windshield. So it uh, really didn't have a pit area or a pit road. They just turned off the racetrack and went through the infield. And uh, so my dad come in hollering about getting the mud off the windshield. So I jump up on the windshield and I'm cleaning the windshield, and we have a caution car go around and slow everybody behind, down, and they run behind. So the my dad looked in the mirror and seen the caution car coming, because if he'd have sat still, we'd have been lapped down. He just takes off, and I'm on the hood of the car. He runs around, comes back around, and then runs through the pits, and I jump off. By then, the windshield's clean, and here come the officials. And they run me back in the infield. I hide from them. <laughs> Anyhow, it's, uh, did did he know you were on the roof? Well, I wasn't I, I on the roof. I was on the hood. were on the hood. Yeah. yeah, I was on the hood. Okay. Yeah. You dang right, I did. Because I, when my dad said do something, you didn't question it. You went and done it. Okay. And and so yeah, he just said hang on, and I, he just took off. But probably and, and it you know used to a long time ago they had race cars and had driving mechanics. I didn't know I was going to be a, a riding mechanic with him. <laughs>
0: Um, later on, when you both were actually racing in professional races together, why do you think he never eased up on you even a little bit? He was, he came through the depression.
1: He was a hardcore deal, and everything he accomplished was just through hard work. Had a lot of good breaks, don't get me wrong, but he he worked for it, and he he expected his boys to do the same thing. Uh, I think the first race that I was ever flagged the winner, he protested. Right.
0: And uh, a, a famous story. <laughs> what? what well, explain was Atlanta, what's going was, on there.
1: It was Atlanta, Georgia. I think they ran a 150-mile race at Lakewood Speedway on the dirt. And it was real dusty and all that. And, and this was 1959. And so when the race was over, they, they flagged me the winner. Okay, so, they, so we was on the racetrack and. Uh, Jumping up and down as kids, and thought would win a race, and somebody said somebody's protesting. And I said, Golly, for what? Well, your dad's protested. Okay, he protested because he thought they had left him out of lap or somehow they'd messed up on the score. So uh, they, they went ahead and gave him the race. And when, when, now his explanation was, you know, when you win a race, I want you to win a race. But if you don't, then I don't want
0: anybody to give you nothing. You wrote about this in your autobiography, which uh, I read and really enjoyed. Um, it was pretty frustrating for you, though, at the time, even though you might not have admitted it for a while.
1: Well, yeah, you know, you think you done something, and you, uh, you, you know, I hadn't ever won a race up to the end. So naturally, you're looking for your first race and, stuff. and uh, But again, it was the times you accepted it. and. You might have thought about it, but there wasn't nothing you could do about it
0: because it was history. So you just went on down and read. It. How did your dad get into moonshining?
1: <laughs> you know, I, I don't really know how he started, because this this had to be back in the uh, late thirties, early early forties, and uh, my dad had a, had a truck or two, and he hauled sand and bricks and and then all the stuff and. I don't know. Somewhere down the line, he decided to haul a little liquor on the truck. I guess <laughs> him and his brother was—they—they they didn't manufacture. They—they w- would—they would buy in one place, and they were sellers. They'd buy stuff, and then they would transport it to some place and sell it. We'd go to town and go around all the speakeasies or whatever, and they'd get an order. Uh, then maybe 10, 11 o'clock at night, he'd—he had had some liquor pit in some different places. He'd go pick up some, and uh, we just scoot in different places, go in an alley somewhere, and he'd open the door and just slide it out on the side of the road or go to the graveyard and put it behind the deal. And then the next day, he would go collect. Then he'd get his money, and then he'd get another order. And that that went, went on until basically racing got him out of the liquor business. he seen another way of making a living uh, that, he could
0: he could do it and tell people what he was doing. And, but the liquor business kind of indirectly started the well, in, r- indirectly racing business. Indirectly because
1: uh, the, the idea was that he didn't... He, we had a, a 37 Plymouth or something, but he had a straight-eight Buick motor with two carburetors and all that, so the car would run fast. So he was mechanical, inclined, and was racy. They used to race up and down the road for money. People come from Atlanta or Daytona uh, in... They'd find a stretch of road somewhere, 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and they'd bet thousands of dollars just who could run the fastest, and they'd race each other. So uh, he was a racer. Then
0: all of a sudden he got to be able to do it legally, and they really jumped in there. What would happen if they passed a cop in one of those late-night races?
1: <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? I, I don't. They never, uh, from what I can pick up, uh, they never got caught. They, they just keep going, they, right? They'd, they'd
0: keep on going. That's for dang sure, and the cops sure wasn't gonna catch them. How significant a moment was it—the first time your dad went down to Daytona to watch a race?
1: You know, I, I guess we'd been. It went down in '48 or sometime. Um, they had summer races down at Daytona, and uh, and we we had a. I think Daddy had a '40 Plymouth Coach, and we drove, we drove to uh, Daytona. And uh, my brother, myself, mother, and dad. And first time I'd ever seen the ocean. Probably never been out of Randolph County. Never been to the beach at uh, in the Carolinas or the mountains or nothing. We just was home people, and we stayed there.
0: So you'd only been around your town, and all of yeah, a sudden just, you're off in all of a sudden we going Florida, to Florida on the Florida? beach.
1: Man, we big shots. There's very few people out of Randolph County uh, in 1948, 47. went out of Randolph County. You know, you, you, you. it was just a deal of live and let live. You just made a living and stayed where you was at and just done your own thing.
0: How would you describe what NASCAR was like then when everything was new, the rules were sort of s- still being figured out, there wasn't any history per se to fall back on?
1: Well, it, it was just a beginning, okay? It was, they planted a seed and uh, all the, people involved just kept cultivating the seed, I guess. And, and the tree kept growing, and you got what you got now. Right. And that's the way I sort of explain it. There was, it was open season, nobody knew what was going on, nobody knew what was gonna happen. Uh, the first thing we done when we, they were strictly stock cars, the first thing they did was break wheels. So NASCAR said, well, can't have this, so they let you put a, a better wheel on the car. Then first thing you knew. You break the hubs that hold the wheel, you gotta put a bigger hub. Then you break the spindle, then you put a bigger spindle, and then you break, you know, whatever it was. So over a period of time the cars went from strictly stock. That broke things and every time you'd break something, you'd make a better product. Okay. And today everything's spatial made because stock stuff is just not good enough to run two hundred mile an hour and not safe enough. So It was just a slow, slow progress to get from one year to the next year, to the next model, to being able to race more. I mean, when we first started racing, probably two thirds of the deal was just being around at the end of the race. You didn't race nobody, you just went out and run. And if you finish the race, you're gonna finish pretty good. And then as time progressed, the racing got closer to people racing each other. Now it's all sprint racing. People don't have trouble with the wheels falling off the car or the brakes not working, motor blowing up. They just, it's just a sprint race all the way. So it just took, you know, 65 years to get where we're at.
0: Today, the professional drivers of multiple cars, a team of people, back when you were first starting to race, what happened if you crashed the car you were racing? (laughs) You crashed
1: the car, you took it home, you worked on it and fixed the thing. So you was real, real careful not to tear up no more than you had to. But again, uh, we had one race car, and you, you, the drivers most of the time t- took pretty good care of the thing as much as they could, because if we didn't finish the race, you didn't get paid, and so and if you tore it up, you didn't have enough money to fix it for the next week so so it was ju- it was just a survival to begin with. Uh, well, it still is as far as that's concerned, but it's a survival. Uh, occupation. You got to survive. You got to be there when it's all over in order to get a good paycheck.
0: And I thought it was interesting. You wrote in y- your book that um, driving or racing was your hobby. Working on cars was right. actually your job.
1: See, that's that's why when uh, basically when I, I quit driving, retired or whatever in 92. Uh, the deal was up to that time, like I say, you work six days a week or seven days, whatever it was. You made appearances for sponsors. Uh, you worked on the car. Uh, you drove the car, the truck to the racetrack, uh, helped unload it, you done done all this stuff. And uh, when you got in the car, it was the only time that I felt like I had a little bit of control of my destiny. Uh, even at home with our wife and kids, and you know, there's so much going on. Uh, you don't control. You think you're controlling stuff, but you don't control a whole lot. When I was in that car, I could run fast. I could stop. I could go. I could do something basically by myself, me and the vehicle. And so, it was just a hobby deal. And it just, I really, really enjoyed driving a race car, whether whether you won or not. And naturally, you tried to win. But the big deal was, if there's a car in front of you, let's pass him. Even if you're 15 laps behind, he's 20 laps or he's leading the race. Don't make it. Ever. You got to, That that was your challenge. You had to challenge every lap to do a little bit better than what you'd done the lap before. So again, it just I just led the driver race car.
0: Well, and as you said, the last
1: laps where you make the money, anyways. I mean, um. I, that's that's what it's all about. But you got to be smart enough, or good enough, or lucky enough to be in a position mm-hmm. to do the last part of the race as far as. Uh, Payday. I mean, going out and leading the race and stuff—no big deal. You know, that that it looks good on TV or to your fans, or you feel good about it, but it don't pay anything. It pays when see that check
0: The injuries, um, the 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 tolerance you had for pain must have been extraordinary. But how do you view physical pain? See, the the strongest
1: thing a person has is his mind. And it's just, it's a mind, it's a mindset deal. No matter how bad you was hurt, your job was to get in that race car and do the best you could with it. So between the obligations you had to you and your family and the people that you worked with, and your mind, you just went and done it. You didn't think anything about it. I mean, if you had a broke leg, you got in the car. If your ribs were broke, you got in the car. If your neck was broke, you got in the car. You know, shoulder broke, they taped the dang thing up. and. Put you in the car and you win, and you you never thought about not doing it because that was your job. The worst rib injury you ever drove with would be what? Well, we just went to tear all the, all your ribs loose, and when the whole whole thing comes loose, there's nothing that I ever had hurt me as much as having broke ribs, uh, because if you breathe, <laughs> they hurt; if you laugh, they kill you. And you'd be sitting here, and they hurt a little bit. And every time you move, they hurt more. And I, I get to me that that's the worst pain I've ever had, trying to wait for them to get healed back up or kind of hook up.
0: How was it to drive with?
1: <laughs> it was tough. I, I broke them so many times. We finally just took a piece of aluminum and went from here around to here, and just bent the thing just where it fit the ribs and then we put uh, foam rubber on the inside of that and then when they'd get in the car they put that on and then just tape the thing up so that when it went in the corner you had something in the seat to keep you from falling out of the seat and uh, so what happened when you did that it spread it over a, a big pure it spread it from the top of your arm the bottom of your arm to to your hip, then it didn't really push on your ribs. Okay. So you, you was able to to do that without
0: without suffering too much. It, it lessened some of the pain, as yeah, well, best yeah, it just, could.
1: Again, you know, might take a goodies or a, a shot of Novocaine, but they, they wouldn't last very long, so you just had to go on. Explain
0: the situation in which you broke your neck.
1: <laughs> we was uh over. Uh, Pennsylvania in 1980 I think somewhere right along there. I'm going in a turn and the wheel breaks and I run up on the guard, guard rail and catch fence and turn the car over and just tear it all to pieces. And Dale Inman, crew chief, he runs down there and wants to know what's going on. I said I think I broke my neck but don't know. Okay. So they take me over to... You said it casually like that? Yeah, you just said, you know, my neck's hurting. I think I broke it. I said, okay. So they laid (laughs) me down. They took me to the little hospital down somewhere there in Pennsylvania. And so I'm laying there, and my wife's there, and we're sort of waiting on the doctor to come in. He comes in with his X-ray, and he's looking at the lights and looking at it. And he said, when did you have your neck broke before? I said, I didn't know I had it broke before. And he he showed the X-ray where it moved over about a eighth of an inch, one of the vertebrates or something had a crack in it, and had calcium around it. And I said, well, probably broke it sometime when I broke something else and it hurt worse. See, your body can only hurt one place at a time. So, you know, and then we went from went from there to Talladega the next week and had a doctor up there in Pennsylvania. He made me a special brace for my neck and so we went down and I think we qualified the car and started the race, and then I got out of the car and put another boy in it. But uh, that, that's what we're doing. How many well, concussions do time you
0: time. think you've had?
1: You know, <laughs> there's no telling. See, every time you hit your head, you got some kind of
0: concussion.
1: So you can imagine with all the stuff we had, he probably had eight or 10 that was pretty pretty strong.
0: You think you have any lasting side effects from the concussions? I told
1: I the told guys, I said, Probably I'm walking around now with a concussion and don't even know it. Had so many, con- <laughs> so I don't know how I'd be if you didn't have a concussion. But yeah, you you know it's you know it's got to beat on your head and slow down something. So I don't know, if Alzheimer's or something like that. If I would have a start-up deal on that, I, I don't know. So far, I can remember to get up and, and eat and go to bed, so I'm okay.
0: Drag race, Georgia. Um, you know, you crash, and the crash injures uh, spectators, kills an eight-year-old. Um, all these years later, how vividly do you still remember that day?
1: You know, that was in 1965. <clears> he <throat> was running a drag race somewhere in Georgia. And we get off the line, a car breaks an A-frame or something, and he had, goes off and kills a little kid that, that's alongside the track and it was it took me a long time to get over there because I had a couple of kids had three kids at the time you know what I mean and just and I wasn't that old either uh, it was just one of the deals that uh, you say why you know why me why did why did that all happen but you know when when stuff like that happens you learn from it, but you can't live with it. You have to say, that was history, I can't go back, I can't change any of that, it is what it is. And so, you, you learn to accept it. Then, you know, later on, uh, I think in 1975, um, my wife's brother was killed in, in the pits at uh, Talladega. And we had a tank, and the tank blew up. <clears throat> I had a pressure tank, water tank, and uh, The deal that blew up, and then in two thousand, I lost grandson Adam Petty, uh, in uh, New Hampshire. So you you started out um, the, the kid in Georgia. I didn't know, okay, but then I knew my brother in law, and then all of a sudden it's my grandson. So it came closer and closer, but all of them sort of fit into. A pattern of there were tragedies. We were there. We were involved, but we really didn't have anything to do with it. It just, again, it was a fate deal that happened. And you know, the deal with at least with Adam. Then we were able to get together and go back and build the Victor Junction Gang Camp for chronicle and seriously ill kids uh, ten years ago or something. It's been going on so. You know, out of tragedy, for one or for a family or a few families, all the other, you know, twenty-one, twenty-two thousand kids that's come through there, it's been a blessing for them. So you look back and say, we lost one deal, but look at all the good things that come out of that. So that that's how I balance a lot.
0: There was a letter that a fan wrote to you after. The death of your grandson, yeah, this, Adam, passed away? Yeah, uh,
1: some lady sent a letter. You know, it was c- kind of a deal that, you know, you question yourself. And I mean, it, it really hit hard because I said, if I hadn't been in racing, then Adam probably wouldn't have been in a race car and he probably wouldn't have got killed in a race. The letter said, you know, don't put a question mark where God has put a period. And it just it was just like, it took away the world off of it. I mean, I. I've never had that many uh, occasions to feel relief. I guess was what it was. It was just a deal. Hey, you're not responsible. It, again, it just happened, and it just just like like I say, it just like took a weight off of me, and and then I could go on and do help with the Victory Junction Gang, do 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 my business like I was supposed to. But for a couple of weeks there, I was I was pretty down.
0: How much credit uh, do you give to your late wife for all the success that you had during <laughs> your career?
1: You know, it's, it's a funny thing. Uh, I think we got married when she was 17. Had two kids by the time she was 19. I 21, 22 years old. And the, the deal being she was young, I was young. We'd never been in that part of our life. It just growing up, not knowing what you supposed to do, what you wasn't supposed to do. And the the situation wound up was she was the homebody. She took care of the house. She took care of the bills. She took all of that kind of deal. I went out and done my racing and did my job. And then it, it was like, I told people, it was like three lives. She lived a life, I lived a life, and we lived a life together. So we were married 55 years. We probably lived together 25, which was okay. Because I'd come home, stay two or three days and couldn't wait to get away and be gone, be away two or three days and couldn't wait to get back home. So it was just, it was a perfect situation for my situation. It uh, might not work for anybody else, but it worked for us.
0: I was talking to your daughter, Rebecca, uh, about this last night and she was saying, in a way it was kind of tough for your mom because on, one hand, you know, she wants to be the wife and be with you on the race weekends, uh, you know, all the time. Yet on the other hand, she knew she needed to be to at her home job. and be, be the mother. How difficult do you think that was for her?
1: You know, again, we started this real young. Mm-hmm. And we had no guidance of what was right or wrong or what we needed to do or when we needed to do it. And we just let it develop. In other words, when the situation was this way, we're going this way or this way. We just I guess we was young enough to know that life was out there. We didn't understand it. And whatever throwed at us, we just do take it and make the best out of it. And she done a heck of
0: a good job with that. And you figured out what worked best for you for, guys. For the whole family. I, I read this, and this cannot be true. When you guys were going on your early dates and you were courting her, were you really picking her up in a car that didn't even have a passenger seat? Yes. <laughs> I had a had, what you a, had a fifty
1: six Dodge. All had it all lowered, big wheels and tires. Had a, a fifty seven Oldsmobile motor with three carburetors and no mufflers and all that. And so it, you know, they come with bench seats. I, mean, I got the idea I didn't want the bench seat. I, I went a, a, some kind of truck or something that had a bucket seat. So I put the bucket seat in the thing. So I drove around and uh, I took a big rug and stuff and laid laid in the floorboard so the floorboard wasn't that rough. And uh, when I'd go pick her up, I'd take a wheel and just put a wheel over there and put a cushion on the thing and we'd <laughs> ride around. I'd go to the drive-in or go, go to the ball game or whatever. And uh, she'd have to hang on because it wasn't too stable. But that, <laughs>
0: And that that's the truth. We did do that. <laughs> What's her reaction the first time she gets in the car and sees that? She was
1: young and innocent, and it didn't make any difference. If I'd have come with a wagon, she'd have been happy just to go out. So she didn't know any better. <laughs> did,
0: did you really give her $100 for a wedding present?
1: Yeah, That we did. Uh, we went to South Carolina, got married when she was 17. She had to be 18 in North Carolina. Yeah. And uh, I said, okay, I'll give you a wedding present. And she had bought some pots and pans and paying $5 a month on them or some kind of deal. So I give her, a, I said, I'll give you a, so I i give her $100. And uh, she went and paid off pots and pans. I said, now this is a very conservative lady. This is going to be great. <laughs> so uh,
0: we still got some of the pots and pans and that was 55 Six six years ago, Uh, the 1967 Southern 500. Why might that be the most important race of your career? 67. Uh huh. You you said in your book that you thought that might be really
1: okay. You got to figure along in up until 1959. Darlington was the biggest the biggest race. Okay. And then Daytona came along. But it took five or six years for Daytona to outshine Darlington. And everybody that's ever drove Darlington will tell you that it's probably one of the roughest, toughest, hardest racetracks to drive and to win races. Now, you know, I think Pearson's won eight or 10 races there. He just got the knack of it, had good fortune. We never won but three races, I think, there. But my dad had tried from 1949, uh, and I'd tried, and we just was always that close, but never got there. So to win, win a race on what we, what I consider the toughest racetrack, it was just a big accomplishment. Too. And you know, uh, I, th- I think Daytona's finally overcome Darlington, but like I say, up to that time, that was the crown jewel of NASCAR.
0: How about the time you crashed and you thought you might get eaten by alligators?
1: <laughs> yeah, it was in uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And uh, we was on a dirt track and went up the back stretch and the accelerator hung. And when it did, the thing tumbled off. and They didn't have no fence, so you went out in the swamp. and. Uh, so, you know, I was in a convertible. So I was up sitting on the seat waiting for the wrecker to come, and it was up on the bank. And I said, come on down here and get my car And He said, we ain't coming down there. I said, what do you mean? He said, there's alligators out there. So <laughs> they they threw the chain down, and I hooked it to the roll bar, and they pulled me up. But, they, uh, but you could hear them splashing around. I said, man, I'm going to stay in the car. So it worked
0: out. So the Daytona 500, the one that took three days to determine who the actual winner was, what do you think was going on there?
1: You know, we we didn't know, okay. Uh, We always look at conspiracy situation. Uh, Up in uh, in 1956, 57, uh, the factors were involved. Ford, Chrysler, uh, GM had race cars when they pulled all the race cars out they decided that they they weren't going to race anymore and this then in 1959 when they were in Daytona then Bill France was still courting trying to get uh, the factories involved again and the, my dad was in a an Oldsmobile and the guy that they flagged was in a Ford and we always surmised that France thought that if Ford won the race, he might could get them back in racing more than Oldsmobile was not, was never considered a hot rod, per se. And uh, anyhow, we thought about that deal. And, but then after, after everything was done, and it, it took them to Wednesday to decide the deal, after everything was done, and you look back at history, one of the greatest PR deals that ever came about was that if we'd have run Daytona and it had been a winner, it would have been in the newspaper on Monday. Tuesday, we'd never heard tell about it. The way it was, by having the controversy, it was in there Monday, it was in there Tuesday, it was in there Wednesday, it was in there for the next week, just trying to figure it all out. So all of a sudden, Daytona became a big, racing place just because of the PR they was getting on a day-to-day basis.
0: And this isn't like today, where there's all this high-tech stuff where instantly they can tell who won, or the viewer at home on quick replay yeah. can see who see, won. They had to go back, spend they, they time spent, developing had, a photo.
1: They had to look at photos, and, and I I think in France's
0: mind, he knew my dad had won the race. What about your 200th victory? made it so memorable for you? Well, you
1: know, again, my career was sort of going downhill. We, we hadn't won but one other race that year. And so we go to Daytona on July the 4th. Uh, President's flying in. He's on the Air Force One. He says, gentlemen, start your engine. So we start the engine. About halfway through the race, uh, he lands. and uh, President Reagan. Pre- 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 President Reagan. And we're not, that's the furthest thing from my mind because we're out there racing. And and, it comes down to the end of the race and Kale, Yorba and myself are are racing. And uh, the uh, deal is I'm not thinking about 200. I'm not thinking about anything except how do we beat Kale. So I'm able to duck down beside of it. And we come down to to the start finish line with, we've got, black marks on both sides of the car where we were touching each other. And I wind up beating him probably a couple of three feet. And uh, so then when that's over with, uh, they had then told us to stop it uh, on the racetrack. Instead of going to the winner's circle, stop him on the racetrack. The president was up in a press box. So we'd go up and, and uh, get to talk to the president in the press box. And then when, We get through there, we take pictures and do the whole deal. And uh, then when the race was over, they uh, took the garage area and closed it off. And uh, the drivers, their families, the crews and their families got to eat Kentucky Fried Chicken with the President of the United States on July the 4th on top of that. So it it wound up being a a really a big day for us. I guess a big day for him. I always looked at it. He put us on the front page. We put him in the sports page. So it was a, it was a win-win for, for us uh,
0: all the way around. Your last race was Jeff Gordon's first race. Uh, and he actually uh, still has that uh, souvenir money clip that you yeah. gave to all of the you know, drivers who were competing in your last race. Um, what do you think of Jeff Gordon? jeff
1: done a heck of a job you know if you look back at nascar you've got different leaders at different times uh bringing the sport forward okay and you know to begin with there was an era then i came through with an era with pearson and allisons and bakers and yarboroughs then it kind of shifted over to a daryl and and then to uh uh, Dale Earnhardt, and then then it shifted to Jeff Gordon. And he was the first really young guy to come in because most of the guys that went through the process of doing the NASCAR sportsman, and they were always 25, 26 years old before they got a first-class ride. He come in, and he gets a first-class ride at 20 years old, 21 years old. And so he starts a new trend of younger people coming into the sport. And in doing that, then the face of NASCAR, he changed it from one face to another face. And so, again, he's been a really, really big asset to be able to be as personable, uh, to be on late night TV or early morning TV, talked about anybody to anything about, all different kinds of subjects, and still be a heck of a race car driver.
0: What would you say is the biggest change that you've noticed in NASCAR over your lifetime in the sport? Technology's been the biggest
1: change. Uh, we're, we used to work here, and everything we did was off of experience, and CD and britches. Over a period of time, we got engineers, we got computers, NASCAR's tightened up the rules. Uh, everything's got to be. Used to we measure everything in inches. Now they measure in thousands, and that that changes the whole philosophy of what we got can accomplish. And so, if the biggest one deal, you know, I'm like I'm like Kyle Petty. He says the only thing about racing is today is what it used to be when it started is they throw the green flag when the race starts and they throw a checker when it's over. Everything else is different. And uh, my biggest deal is the money come into it, technology come into it, and it's just, it's more of a, uh, a sport, it's, it's more of a show now than it used to be. It used to be a race. Nobody worried about showtime, you know, being correct English or doing anything. Then it got to come with the TV and with all the publicity. We're we're in the show business, even though we, as Richard Petty Motorsports, wants to be in the racing business. Okay, so we we're in the racing business, putting on a
0: show. Your daughter says she most misses the family atmosphere that existed earlier on in the sport. You know, when there wasn't the money. When uh, the drivers weren't flying in and out on their private jets when they're yeah. actually, you know, everybody was together more.
1: No, you know, I mean, you'd go to a race, and all the drivers, drivers' wives or girlfriends, they all parked in the infield. They didn't have a spatial place for them. And over a period of time, they finally put them in a place. Then as as generations change, they don't start, with where the generation before started. They start where the generation before ended up. So they go each step and uh, they didn't have to sleep in the back of the truck uh, to get to California. They fly in a private jet. When they get there, they got a either a big motel room or they got their own bus. They don't have to associate uh, with the general public if they don't want to. So, you know, that that part's changed just because uh, the sport has changed. And and to me it's grown up and there's nothing the matter with it. It's just so much different. And the the Jeff Gordon's didn't go through what I went through. I didn't go through what the Lee Petties went through. Okay? So each 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 generation's made it easier for the next generation.
0: We had uh Uh, The NASCAR Hall of Fame, uh, on their uh, Facebook page, asked their fans to submit questions for you. And uh, we wanted to pick out one of the questions to read for you. And it's uh, Ian Spence asks, if you could go back in time to the very first race, back to the future style, what would be the one thing you would tell yourself to do differently?
1: You know, everybody asks, "What, what if, what if, what if? If I'd have changed one thing back when I started, everything would be different today. Okay? So you look back and you say, I wish that I'd have done this, or I wish that I'd have done that. But then when it all washes out, would you be in the situation you're in today? So I go back and say, I wouldn't change anything. Because any, any things I changed would have changed so much other things. I know I'm getting complicated here, but no, I get it. the the deal of being able here to sit here and sit, talk to you, be here at the museum, I've accomplished all this stuff with all the people that made it made it happen for me. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't want to change anything.
0: This has been a real treat. Thank you very much, yes, sir, everybody. Thank you, man. That was my interview with motorsports legend Richard Petty. If you're looking to spend a little more time with The King, head over to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger for tours of his memorabilia and custom car shop Petty's Garage. As always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews. Thanks again for listening.